It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentile is a non-Jew. Anyone who was not a Jew, which they were themselves. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have, been, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we want to pray that as we are now opening up this searching passage, that, Lord, the Word of God will have its effect to gently but definitely open up, Lord, the, those parts of our hearts that need to be exposed to your light. I pray for those here who have never experienced your goodness and your love and your compassion. I pray for a new hope today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you today about the, um, the spiritual danger of, of nostalgia. Nostalgia is um, a kind of a sentimental desire or longing, uh, or a kind of, it's described as a kind of wistful um, affection for the past. And that may be a past that you have lived through, part of your own personal experience in life. You can be nostalgic for things that you've never experienced a kind of uh, a version of the past that you have witnessed or seen or heard about. And of course, on the one hand, nostalgia can be quite enjoyable. It can be enjoyable to indulge in nostalgia, to reminisce. Uh, it's one of my favorite things is to catch up with old friends, friends who uh, knew me uh, before all of this, before was so burdened with pastoring and the, the careless, carefree life that we once used to live. And, we, you know, when you, when you meet up with friends, what do you do? You tell stories of the antics and, and laughter from days gone by. That's what you do. And it's part of the joy and delight of walking with people on a long road. I can appreciate that, of course. But nostalgia has a dark side. In that it can create within you a longing for a past that perhaps didn't exist. Not in the way you remember it, at least. I um, had a friend from overseas whose, whose main historical knowledge of, of England was watching Downton Abbey. And he remarked to me one day that, you know, maybe the class system uh, was not so bad after all. Because, look, they were, they're so happy. The aristocrats and the servants and the household, it all just seemed to work. And of course, if you take your history lessons from Downton Abbey... Maybe you can come to that nostalgic view that England was better back then. And this is the problem of nostalgia. Nostalgia, on a personal level, has a kind of double-edged danger. On the one hand, it creates a sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are, with the present moment. And it also awakens in you a longing for the past. 
and often for a past, as I've been saying, that isn't real or that is tinted in some way with a gloss, with a sheen of, uh, of untruth or of lies and a fictitious past. This is what happens very often, particularly to men, when they reach a certain phase in life that's described as the midlife crisis. And uh, what can happen is that they can begin to feel the emptiness of the present, a bit of resentment grows with uh, the situation they're in, perhaps a dissatisfaction with the wife, dissatisfaction, frustration with the responsibility of children or the job that feels uh, burdensome and uh, maybe isn't as successful as you desire. And so what begins to awaken, I know this is a long way off for many of you, but what can begin to awaken is a kind of nostalgic remembrance of a past that you left behind, or what you imagine it was at least, uh, back when you were carefree and, and joyful. And so what men often do is they, they buy large motorbikes and um, ride around too fast, often kill themselves actually, it's a true story in midlife because they, they, they think they're more skillful than they are on, on the thing. And then also reconnect with maybe that woman who got away. And, uh, you know, it can lead to disaster. It can lead to self-destruction as a person blows up their life out of that, that, that all began with that kind of nostalgic dream. Uh, I remember before, even before Facebook, there was this website called Friends Reunited. This is before most of you were allowed to use the internet if you were even born. And um, Friends Reunited allowed you to connect with people that you'd been at school with, your primary school, your secondary school. And what people began to notice was an upsurge in divorce as individuals reconnected with that lost love, that romantic interest that they once had as a child or as a teenager. And of course, that nostalgic remembrance of a past that you left behind can awaken a kind of insatiable desire to go backwards and then to destroy the life that you now have as you kind of try to resurrect or to reawaken something from the past. So nostalgia can be a dark and a dangerous thing. And that is especially true when it comes to the spiritual life, the life of walking with Jesus. You can enter seasons in your Christian life in which you can lose sight of the good that you possess, the inheritance that you have in Christ, the wealth that you now possess, the joy that you have in Him. You can lose sight of that. And for whatever reason, begin to yearn for the past. And perhaps it's because you're going through a rough patch or because the spiritual life seems difficult. It can be hard, you know, having to practice self-denial, having to um, exercise sacrifice in service of others, or to, you know, the, the kind of social exclusion that you can experience as a believer. And so what tends to happen is that a person can begin to see only the negatives and lose sight of the joy that is theirs in Christ. And that itch can grow and develop and be, become a problem. And it can create a kind of dangerous spiritual nostalgia in which you begin to long for the past. A couple of stories in the Bible that illustrate this as a very real, very dangerous spiritual condition that you can enter into. One of them famously is in Numbers chapter 11. The people of Israel, God's chosen people having been redeemed and rescued from slavery to the Egyptians, but now living in a kind of state of 
of a, an intermediate state before they've entered into all that God had promised them. They're wandering around in the desert. They're being sustained by manna, God's miraculous supernatural bread which would appear on the desert floor each morning as they woke up, which was largely like flavorless wafers. It wasn't particularly delicious. And you grow tired of eating the same thing day after day after day. What began to awaken in the hearts was a hankering for the life they'd left behind, a hankering for Egypt, a, a desire to go backwards. And it's described like this, this longing that, they, 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 that awakens within them, this strong craving, it's called. It says, oh, that we had meat to eat. I, I know that craving. That's a daily experience for me. It said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers. Have you ever longed for a cucumber? <laughs> it's just water packaged in plant cells. Uh, the, the, the cucumbers. The melons. My least favorite fruit happens to be. The leeks. The onions. And the garlic. You'd be forgiven for imagine, thinking that they're imagining France here, can't you? But they're beginning to awaken this desire for leeks and onions. And of course, what's going on there is they're forgetting what they left behind, which was the brutality and the murderous regime that they lived under, of being slaves to the Egyptians, the Egyptians who forced them to build structures and make bricks without straw, laboring with back-breaking work, with very little sustenance. And what, but what instead is happening is that they're, they're feeling this nostalgic desire for what they left behind. And it creates a spiritual dangerous condition, spiritually dangerous condition, this nostalgia that awakens in their soul. It's depicted for us in the story, the rescue of Lot and his family from the city of Sodom in Genesis, when God's angel says that God is going to destroy the city. But Abraham pleads for his cousin Lot, and so Lot and his family are rescued from the city, but they are warned, do not look back. If you've read the story, you'll remember that Lot's wife just turns and she has a, a glance back at the city that she's leaving behind. And the second that she turns, she's turned to a pillar of salt. What's happening is she's feeling an immediate sense of loss, an immediate sense of nostalgia for the life that she's leaving behind. Rather than seeing the, re the, the resurrection, the newness of life that she's being brought into, she can only see what she's leaving behind. And so this kind of, this nostalgia speaks to us of the problem that can, that can awaken in the Christian life, of the danger of going backwards. We call it backsliding, don't we? Where you let go of the, the joy you have in the present in order to embrace some lost joy, some lost pleasure, some lost indulgence, and return to your old ways. And this, friends, is exactly what Paul is speaking about here urgently and passionately when he is charging these believers not to go backwards. He says, This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And the way in which Paul wants to wake them up and jolt them to their senses is by awakening within them 
an accurate, a more accurate remembrance of what it is that they left behind, the life that they used to live. He's wanting to invoke here a sense of disgust, a sense of the horror of life without God, the life that used to be yours before you knew Jesus. What he's doing in effect, I think, in this passage here is he's, he's opening the photo album. There are two ways you can look at the past. You can look at the photos that you have selected, the ones that make their way into the photo album or onto the Instagram account, that have been curated, that have been airbrushed, that have been filtered, that have been chosen because they flatter, they display only the goodness, they display only the joy. Or you can look at the rest, the rejects, the photos in which you were blinking, in which, you know, you didn't look quite so good, in which you can see the acne and the misery and the, 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 the kind of um, the, the mess that you're making of your life. And that is what Paul's doing here. In order to understand what he, he's doing, we really need to look at this from a couple of angles. We're going to think about this in terms of the life, the old life, the life you've left behind when you're a believer in Jesus. And then also the life that you now have in Christ. So first of all, I want us to think about this life without Christ. Some of you remember this because this was your story almost as though this was a photo portrait of you. And it's vivid in your minds. And it can create horror the second you begin to think of the life that you used to live. Some of you, maybe that's less the case. I think for, for those of us who grew up in Christian homes where we were living under the instruction of parents who loved Jesus, trained us how to follow him, it may be the case that you didn't experience some of the things that Paul's talking about here. But rather than that speaking to you, rather than that being irrelevant for you, in, in many ways the opposite is the case. That there is more urgency and more importance for those of you who, who do not remember this as your past to look at it carefully and examine it closely because you can be just as vulnerable to desiring what perhaps you feel like you messed out on. I've known too many of my peers those who at one stage were professing Christ turned their backs on him because of what? Because of desire to experience the things that they feel that they were denied, whether that's sexually or in terms of other pleasures and indulgences and experiences in life. And therefore, in a sense, it's even more important for you to hear if that's you. For some of you, friends, this is, this is where you are right now. This is where you are, either because you've, you've not come to know Jesus yet, or because for whatever reason you've stumbled back into a way of life and a way of living that you thought you'd left behind, but you've been pulled backwards and drawn backwards into it. Wherever you're at, friends, there is a, there is a desperate urgency for us to look carefully at what Paul is saying here. And here's the headline. He describes your old life as futile. He says it there, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This word futile means emptiness. It speaks of the wastefulness and the pointlessness of life before Christ. And I want to open up for you a few ways that he describes this. The first is this. He says that you were darkened in your understanding. That's how he describes life without Jesus. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding. 
Now, this is not a comment on intelligence. It's not a comment on life without Jesus with respect to a person's IQ. I don't think that we can ever really settle the questions of spiritual truth by lining up which side, either for God or against God, has the most firepower in terms of intelligence quotient. You know, for every atheist like Richard Dawkins, who's a pretty smart man, you have a John Lennox, his great opponent in Oxford University, the professor of mathematics. And so you can, you can do this. You can, you, can, you can set up these kind of intellectual debates as though we could ever settle these things just based on, on intellectual firepower alone. We cannot. What Paul's talking about here when he says that they are darkened in their understanding. This was you before you met Jesus. Your understanding was darkened. He's speaking less of intelligence and perhaps even of knowledge per se. And more of wisdom, I believe. There's a verse in the book of Job. It's echoed also in Proverbs. Where Job says this. He said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. In other words, you cannot live a wise life. To state this negatively, you cannot live a wise life. Your understanding is darkened by definition if you are not living under the the light of the knowledge of God. Unless he's not real to you and shaping every decision that you take. And you might object to that and think, well, look, I can, I can live a wise life. I know how to work hard, to save money, how to live with self-control, how to practice self-mastery, all the rest of it. But everything that you do, all of your understanding of how to live is undercut and undermined by the fact that you're not living within the truth of who God is and his reality. It's like this. Let me use an image for you. Imagine that at some point in the future you had the opportunity to purchase a plot of land and build your dream home. So you, sp- you find a competent architect who designs exactly the kind of home you've always wanted. And because it's the modern age, you install all the latest green technology so it's, no long- it's not connected to the grid. And it's a smart home. And of course, to move into such a place just evokes comfort, it evokes joy, it evokes contentment, because this is the home you always dreamed of. And best of all, the plot of land that you built has a sea view. It's right there at the edge of the ocean. But what you overlooked this entire time was that built as it is on the side of a cliff, that cliff is eroding. There are homes in in our own country where because of the erosion, the gradual erosion of cliffs, there are homes that are every year falling into the sea. And therefore, it doesn't matter how much intelligence and creativity and or money you throw at the project. It doesn't matter how perfect the structure is, how beautiful it is, how wonderful and and contented it makes you. If the entire thing is flawed from the start, built as it is, just to meet its destruction within a few years, that is life without God. You were darkened, he says, in your understanding. Because no matter how successful you were, how, how, well, how much you ha- had life things together, if you weren't building with the knowledge of God, you weren't building wisely. It's impossible. 
You were darkened in your understanding, he says. He then describes an alienation from the life of God. He says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, he's describing these Gentiles, these, these people who are living without the knowledge of God. And he's saying, this is you before you met Jesus. What does he mean when he says alienated from the life of God? Of course, part of the answer to that, as we know, is he speaking about the gift of eternal life. That the Christian is somebody who's placed their faith in Jesus and then received the promise that you will never die, not in the ultimate sense. That your life with God is, is gifted to you. It's what's spoken of in John chapter 3. But John writes that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I think this is part of the answer. But when Paul describes it here and says that without God you were alienated from the life of God, he isn't just, he isn't just speaking about the duration of your life, the fact that life will continue on um, into eternity. Life in the Bible is, is a richer term than just existence. It does, of course, speak of existence, but it's richer than that. And to speak of the life of God actually speaks, I think, of his joy above all. And the joy that he wants to share with you as his creature, as his child. You can see this in the end of the 16th Psalm. Where David writes this, listen carefully, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Hebrew poetry is, is characterized by parallelism, which means that you say something one way and then you say it another way and it's two sides of the same coin. He says, you make known to me the path of life. And what is life? He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in the Bible, the life of God is more than just the reality of his unending existence and the unending eternal life that he can give to you, the duration of your life. It speaks in a much richer sense of the heart of God and the joy that he experiences and the happiness he wants to give you, pleasures forevermore. That's why in John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you. Now, that's a statement like that makes no sense if you're just talking about the length of life, the duration of life, eternal life in that sense. It has to be speaking about the quality of the life that you now live, if you know God. This is eternal life, that they know you. That coming to know God is the, the breaking in of joy and of happiness into the deepest part of your soul in a way that you could never and had never experienced before you came to know him. It's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just meaning in an unending way, but the richness and the quality of the life that you now live. And here's what Paul is saying. He says, not only were you darkened in your understanding, so that by definition your life was foolish, no matter how smart you were, your life was foolish if it was, if it was separated from God, darkened in your understanding. But also this, without God, you were alienated, in your, in your, you were alienated from his life. 
from the joy that he communicates to you, that he transmits to you by the presence of his spirit in your heart. I think some of you may, at this moment, think, well, that just seems unfair, doesn't it? If life without God is disconnection from that ultimate sense of joy, then no wonder that we turn to sin so easily in order to find a substitute for that joy. But what Paul says here is, he says, look, this was always our own fault. Because we're alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart, he says. In other words, even if the way to God and his life and his joy was wide open to you, you refused. There was a time in your life, and maybe it's true of you right now, when you were refusing to choose the good because you believed the lie of the bad. This is what is described in Jeremiah chapter 2. God says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, turned away from me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. He's describing there the possibility of either taking a drink from an ever-flowing spring that just gushes out from the heart of the earth and is always clean and pure and life-giving, or drinking water out of a stagnant well full of legionnaires and mud and silt and newts and frogs. And he's saying, this is what it's like when somebody turns away from me. You're turning away from the, the spring, the ever-flowing spring of life, the joy that God wants to give you in the deepest part of your soul, and you're drinking water out of muddy puddles and dodgy wells. Paul's saying, this is life without him, friends. Do you remember? He's showing you the photo album. You were darkened in your understanding. You were alienated from his life. You didn't know the joy that God wanted to give you at that time. And then he says the last thing about this life without Christ. He says, you were callous. Here's how he puts it. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What's callousness? Callousness is insensitivity to pain. When you describe your skin as developing calluses, it's when your skin is thickened so as to prevent pain because of repeated action. Now sometimes that insensitivity or calluses, it's useful. My wife loves to laugh at me because if ever I take off my socks and shoes and walk on any surface that isn't perfectly smooth or carpeted, I'm like hopping around in agony and pain, whereas she can just walk anywhere. She's like, you know, like a firewalker or something like that. I'm just in awe of it. And my feet are too sensitive and perhaps just lack calluses. What can I say? And, uh, and of course, sometimes insensitivity is a necessity in life. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that mostly insensitivity is a dangerous condition that leads you to self-destructive 
behaviors and patterns of life. There was a doctor, Dr. Paul Brand, who famously wrote about leprosy and explained a new world of understanding in the way leprosy works and the way it causes a person to suffer and eventually die. That leprosy is effectively the, the numbing of the nerves that begins at the extremities so that you lose the sense of pain. And of course, the point is that pain is useful. From your youngest years, you learned that when you touch something hot, you immediately recoiled. Or if you were using a knife, the first time you cut yourself, you take care the second time so as not to remove a digit or your, or your whole hand. And But the leper is somebody who, through lack of sensitivity, because of the, the growing insensitivity, the death of the nerves in, in your body, is exposed to danger every day. Can step on a nail and not know it. And therefore catch tetanus can burn the hand and not realize, and so it grows infected and maybe becomes gangrenous. And this is why people who have leprosy will eventually die if they're not taking extraordinary care. And this is what Paul's saying. When you lived without God, the life that you were living developed a callousness to the dangers of the things that you were indulging, the desires you were indulging, that eventually caused you to spiral into patterns of self-destruction. It leads you down these slippery slopes. It's how, what he describes here is he says they've given themselves up to sensuality. In other words, you kind of hand over mastery of life to your desires. You're led by your impulses and lusts to indulge them. And then he, he adds to that greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What is greed? Greed is an insatiable hunger. It's hunger that is never satisfied. And the more you feed the greedy soul, the more that hunger grows and develops something that actually begins to take control of your life. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that life without God is characterized by this insensitivity to the things that are causing you harm, in particular sin and its self-destructive tendencies. And it leads you in ever-spiraling darker places. David Powelson was a Christian counselor and psychologist, American, just died a year or two ago. And he wrote a book about the dangers of lust, like uncontrolled desire. He described, he described it this way. He said, lust is like a dragon. When it cries out inside you for satisfaction, you think, well, if I just feed this thing, it'll be quiet. And so you indulge your desires, and then you experience momentary peace and satisfaction that the dragon is quiet for a second. What you don't realize is that by feeding it, you're causing the thing to grow. And as the dragon grows, you feed it more. It demands more. And the more that you feed, the more it grows until its desires become so all-consuming that it consumes you. This is the life that Paul's describing here, that you were darkened in your understanding. Your life without Jesus was characterized by foolishness. It had to be a foolish way of living because Christ wasn't in the picture. You weren't building on him. You were alienated from the joy that he alone can give, and you were callous as you gave way to your desires, and your desires began to take control of you. 
So he's asking the question, friends, don't you remember what it was like? You know, as that, the wistfulness inside you begins to grow and you think, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I just went back to this or to that. Or you're feeling drawn by the portrayals of happiness and pleasure that you're seeing in the life outside of Jesus. Paul's wanting to turn the lights on and peel back the curtains and reveal the magic trick and show you the illusion. The darkness and the self-destruction that takes place when you live without reference to Jesus. If you're somebody who maybe is caught in a pivotal moment in your life, where that spiritual nostalgia is taking a grip on your heart, you're feeling discontent with Jesus. You're feeling that discontentment that's growing into an urge or an itch that you want to satisfy and satiate. Friend, be warned. When you dip your toe into those beckoning waters, you may drown. And this is Paul's plea. That's why he's charging them with strong language. You must no longer walk in the old ways, the old life. And then he begins to expound or explain this new life that you have with Jesus. I remember asking, how do you prevent spiritual nostalgia and backsliding? And if the first part of the answer is look at life without Christ, the second part is look at what Christ has meant to you, what he's done in you. And there's a lot more we need to say on this, but I want us just to read the 20th verse, and we're going to pause there for today. He just says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. It's not the way you learned Christ. This expression that Paul uses, learned Christ, is a strange one. It's strange in English and it was strange in Greek. The commentators all say that. Because normally you don't speak about your relationship to a person in that way. You can speak about learning a subject, can't you? You can say, I learned maths. Or I learned science. But you don't typically say, you know, I don't say to my wife, I remember when I learned you, sweetheart. Perhaps because I never will. <laughs> but you don't, it's not the way we speak, is it? You don't, you don't speak in those terms. You don't talk about learning a person. So what does he mean here when he says, that is not the way you learned Christ? And I think he's wanting to evoke in your mind a memory of what happened when you encountered him. You see, he's not speaking here of just learning about Christ. Lots of people learn about Christ without ever being surrendered to him. A lot of people grow up, perhaps in church even, Sunday school. We can tell the stories. You know the stories about Jesus. You know why he died on the cross. That does not mean that you learned Christ. The only way I can know if you learned Christ is by looking at whether his imprint is upon your life. It doesn't mean here either, by the way, discipleship to Jesus, necessarily. The craft of growing more like him, that is part of learning Christ. But he doesn't mean that because what he's speaking about here is something definitive that took place in your life, past tense. Learning 
To walk with Jesus is a lifelong journey. It's one that every Christian is walking, the journey that you're walking now if you're a believer in Jesus. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's wanting to call your mind back to something that took place, the pivotal moment, perhaps, or the season in your life when you experienced the life-transforming encounter with Jesus that began to change you from the inside out. You learned him because you encountered him in that personal, relational way. He's speaking, in other words, about your conversion. It's what Jesus meant in that verse I read in John chapter 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. It's the life that was given to you instantaneously. The second that you were introduced to Jesus in that life-changing way, and that he began to consume you from the inside out, saturating your entire being. That is what it means to learn Christ. And I think that it is an answer to everything that we've been understanding about the life without Jesus. Let me just open this up to you a little bit here. What does it mean that you learned Christ? It means that you, first of all, encountered truth that pierced through the darkness of confusion and lies. You know that feeling when your mind is wrestling with an intractable problem, perhaps a puzzle, that you can't quite see or understand. But the moment that you begin to understand that the, the penny drops and you can see, at that point you can't unsee. You can't transport yourself back to that moment before you could see. You can't experience the confusion. Instead, what floods you is a sense of relief. And the bigger the problems that you face in life and the more challenging the questions that you wrestle with, the greater the relief is when the lights are turned on. There's a theologian called John Frame who uses a memorable expression. He describes this as cognitive rest. Rest for your mind. When you're wrestling with a problem, you cannot quite untangle. Your brow is furrowed. And of course, your life without Jesus, if you were awake enough to ask, even ask the questions, the right questions was characterized by confusion and that sense of being tangled in the greater questions of life that you could not see a way through. But Jesus entered the room and he switched on the light. He is the light. He's described in the first chapter of John's gospel as the light that shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And when you see him truly, when you really see him, you cannot unsee him and your life has been flooded with his truth in the way that you can no longer live as though he's not there. You can't live in the foolish ways that you used to live because Christ is present now. And every decision, your entire life direction, the way you think about the world and your place in it, everything is shaped by the reality of that truth. That is wisdom, friends. This is how you learned Christ. He's truth. Another way I can express it is like this, that you encountered life that dealt with your despair and emptiness and dissatisfaction. You know how Paul was describing the futility of mind that characterized life without God, being alienated from his life. 
the weird thing is, of course, that once you've experienced the life of God, the danger that the Christian faces is that you can forget what it was like when you didn't know that. It's a bit like how in life when you, you know, you can experience desperate hunger in one moment. But if you eat, and if you eat rapidly, and if you fill your belly, you cannot quickly forget what hunger feels like. You have no desire for food. You don't even want to look at food. It's the same with cold and warmth. When you're warm, even hot or sweating, you can't remember what cold felt like. And something like that is true of the Christian life. It, you know, you have, to, you have to really search back, don't you, into the recesses of your mind to remember what it felt like to not know the life of God, to not know the certainty of hope and the presence of his life in you, the joy that he communicates and transmits to you at the depths of your soul. But you learned Christ, friend. And when you learned him, you gained access to this joy that is the spark of life. It's what David described. You remember in that verse I read from Psalm 16. You have made known to me. Let me just get this verse right. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You've encountered truth. You've experienced this life. The last way in which I, you learned Christ is that you also encountered his purity. In a way that began to heal you of your uncontrolled desires. Life before Jesus was like being lost at sea. If you ever had the misfortune of being capsized and being lost at sea, away from land and without resources to sustain you, what's the greatest danger that you face? It's not so, so much the danger of drowning if you cling on to the boat, but it's actually dying of thirst. It's a great irony, isn't it, of being lost at sea. You can die of thirst even if you're surrounded by water. And the second great danger is that you drink the water that will poison you and kill you from the inside. Life before you knew Christ was life at sea, in which you desperately looked around for any possible opportunity to slake your thirst and to have a drink that might sustain your life. And of course, that's the very thing that was killing you. Being introduced to Jesus was like taking the long, cool, refreshing draft from that ever-flowing spring that Jeremiah described, the fountain of living water. It's what Jesus spoke about in John chapter 4 when he met that woman at the well and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's speaking of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. So friend, my challenge for you, and the challenge that Paul's bringing to us here, 
is not to believe the lies of spiritual nostalgia. If you felt something of the, the temptation, the pull, the enticement of those things that maybe you left behind in an old life or maybe you never indulged, and now you're wondering, what if? Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. If you're feeling the yearning and the pull, open your eyes. Look behind the magic trick. Understand the illusion. Don't walk in that old way. But rather, the invitation is come afresh to Jesus. Remember you learned Christ. The love of Christ has permeated your life. And maybe right now you can't see his goodness. But Jesus is drawing you back to himself. Drawing you back to the fountain. Drawing you back to a fresh encounter. To the joy of what it means to know him. I want to encourage you to bow your heads. If you are at a point in your Christian life where there is a kind of pivotal moment for you. You're feeling the pull. You're feeling the draw back to the old way. The Lord is speaking to you today. And you have an opportunity as the Lord speaks to respond to his word. To see things as they are. To understand the reality. And then to choose him again. This is a choice that every Christian makes every single day when you're walking with Christ in growing maturity. Every day you're saying goodbye to the old. And yes to Jesus. Is your soul satisfied in him? Are you finding that you are genuinely happy because you're drinking from his never-ending well, his spring? And so far as you are, you are safe. And as much as you are slaking your thirst with Christ, there's no risk for you, is there? That you'll go back to that dodgy water that harmed you. And so friendly invitation is let's come back to him now.